Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the roll of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts. Vacant Flesh From the day I moved in down the hall from him, Gustav Berzinski insisted that I call him Gus. I never did, though. I still referred to him as Gustav, or Mr. Berzinski. I did it partly because I admired him, because I felt his level of sophistication necessitated a more formal greeting. But I also did it because it annoyed him, and it was funny to watch him get annoyed. Mr. Brzezinski, don't you, he would say. Only policemen and dentists call me that. Like many immigrants, he seemed to want to Americanize his name. But I thought that was a crime. It only made the world more bland. Mr. Brzezinski, there's enough Tom, Dick, and Harrys out there, I would tell him. And you can go to hell, he would say. He was one of those people whose facial expressions made him look as though he were perpetually entertained, a mischievous smile always hiding in the corners of his eyes. He was short, his head bald and shiny, and for some reason he always appeared slightly wet, as though he had just gotten out of the shower. His white t-shirt, usually stained, tucked hastily into the waist of his trousers. He wore thin-rimmed spectacles and had a bushy gray mustache below his nose. He wasn't sophisticated in a suave or debonair way, but his intellect was immense, and he always seemed to have some bold, contrarian opinion to share. We'd sit in his cramped apartment, the walls stacked floor to ceiling with books, occasionally sipping tea and chatting about art or philosophy or politics. Mr. Brzezinski was a devout socialist, a topic I was openly indifferent about. It wasn't necessarily that I disagreed with socialism. I just didn't care to espouse it either. But I think my failure to concede only made him more adamant in his evangelizing. I can recall many such nights, Mr. Brzezinski squinting at me, then slowly stubbing his cigarette out in the ashtray on the coffee table. A brilliant man once said, the real purpose of socialism is to overcome and advance beyond the predatory phase of human development, he'd say. Sure, I'd respond, it's a nice idea but it assumes that we're capable of advancing past our so-called predatory phase, which I think is giving us too much credit. What if we can't move past our violent impulses? What if humanity is inherently predatory? He'd shake his head, roll his eyes. 
I think spending time with me was a source of entertainment for him. I wouldn't go as far as to say he was lonely, but he certainly seemed to appreciate having me around. He lived by himself, had no family. On the single occasion that I'd asked him, he'd said only that he was incompatible with the type of people that have children. I didn't prod further. One thing that I'd learned about Mr. Brzezinski early on was that there were some things he just didn't want to discuss. I respected his privacy. It was a kind of unspoken agreement. If I ever got the feeling I was verging on a topic that he wasn't comfortable with, I'd steer the conversation in another direction. He didn't get angry or stern when something came up that he didn't want to talk about, but he'd just sort of go quiet and sit there, his contemplative eyes staring off into nothing. After a minute or so, he'd come out of it, rising from his chair and shuffling off down the hallway, mumbling that he had to lay down, that I could let myself out. It was sometimes hard to know if I'd offended him or if he was simply tired. He wasn't all that fond of explaining himself. I knew that Mr. Brzezinski had made a living as a sculptor. Like socialism, sculpture was another favorite topic of his. He had lots of strong ideas about what art should and shouldn't be. He would say things like, What every great sculpture reveals is the image of the human soul. Or, Sculptures cannot be examined or analyzed. They can only be understood intuitively. He was also fond of theater and painting, music, especially the classics. But the conversation inevitably circled back to sculpture. He felt that sculpture was the purest form of art, because the appearance of a sculpture changes when the viewer's own perspective changes. Eventually, I introduced Mr. Brzezinski to Janine, my girlfriend at the time. They got along well. He enjoyed her wit, her occasional audacity. I was also friends with a young insurance broker named Albert Gillespie that lived on the third floor of our building. And one night, I brought him to meet Mr. Brzezinski as well. The four of us became quite close. We'd sit for hours, listening to Mr. Brzezinski explain how capitalism had depleted art's value by assigning a price tag to it, or why the desire of man had shifted from conquest to pacification. In the corner of the room, an Art Deco lamp cast a smoky glow over the conversation, the cups of tea in our hands having long since grown cold. When I think back on those nights, it strikes me how content Mr. Brzezinski seemed, how truly satisfied our companionship seemed to make him. It was almost like he was going through a kind of social renaissance in his old age. He was rarely sentimental, but he did say once that it had taken him more than 70 years to understand how he felt about the world and that he was only grateful that there were still people with whom he could share his findings. Because of his age, there was a part of me that was prepared to receive bad news about Mr. Brzezinski. I had privately acknowledged that one day I might go knock on his door, only to learn that his health had taken a turn for the worse. But I wasn't at all prepared for what did actually happen. It was January of 2022 when Mr. Brzezinski stopped answering his phone. He wouldn't come to the door when I knocked, either, and when I went downstairs to the lobby and asked Jillian, the front desk attendant, she said that she hadn't seen Mr. Brzezinski leave the building in at least a week. I felt a subtle sinking sensation in my gut. I think we should call someone, I told her. I think something might be wrong. She phoned the police and about an hour later, two officers arrived to conduct a welfare check. Together, they went upstairs with building security and knocked on Mr. Brzezinski's door. I didn't go with them, standing instead near my apartment's front door with my arms crossed, 
waiting eagerly to hear what they found. When Mr. Brzezinski didn't answer, the building security officer unlocked the apartment's door and let the officers inside. I could hear them in there, calling his name as they walked from room to room. But when they emerged from the apartment a few minutes later, all they did was shrug and shake their heads. There's nobody in there, one of them said. It didn't make sense. Where could he be, I wondered. He got most of his food and groceries delivered. Every time he had to leave the building to run an errand or go to a doctor's appointment, he had to call a driver. I looked out the window at the end of the hallway. Outside, it was gray and blustery. All week, it had been close to freezing, and I couldn't imagine Mr. Brzezinski would fare well in the elements. The police officers told us that we could come down to the station and fill out a missing persons report, but beyond that, there wasn't a whole lot they could do. We called all the local hospitals, and even a few homeless shelters, fearing that perhaps Mr. Brzezinski had fallen and hit his head somewhere, that he was laid up in a bed under the name John Doe. But we couldn't find anyone matching Mr. Brzezinski's description anywhere. After we filed a missing persons report the following day, I started putting a flyer together. Missing. Gustav Brzezinski, it said, in bold black letters. Eyes, brown. Hair, black. Five feet, three inches. 120 pounds. It also included the phone number of the police station where we'd filed the report. I wanted to add a photo of Mr. Brzezinski, but I didn't have any. I did remember seeing a photo of him in his apartment, though. It showed him posing with one of his sculptures, a relief of Orpheus being slaughtered by the Minads. He looked a bit younger in the picture, but it was still recent enough for people to recognize him if they saw him. I went down to the front desk and told Jillian that I was making a flyer for Mr. Brzezinski, but that I needed a picture of him to complete it. Was it possible that I access his apartment to get one? I asked her. Unsure what to do, she'd called her boss. When she hung up the phone, she told me that she could let me into his apartment, but that I couldn't remove anything from the property. That's fine, I said. I'll just take a picture of the picture. Together, we went up to his room, and she let me inside. I walked over to where the picture hung on the wall, surrounded by towering stacks of books. Mr. Brzezinski stood with the sculpture looming behind him, his expression placid, but for a hint of contentment in his eyes. I took out my phone and snapped the clearest photo I could. As I turned to leave his apartment, I noticed something that stopped me. Mr. Brzezinski's coffee table, which was usually stacked from edge to edge with ashtrays and teacups and chessboards suspended in play, was uncharacteristically clean. Only a single item stood on the tidy glass table. It was a book, titled The Brutality of Fact, Interviews with Francis Bacon. I picked it up and cracked it open, and when I did, something slipped out and fluttered down to the coffee table. It was a newspaper clipping, one from a story about Mr. Brzezinski. It had a picture of him when he was a much younger man, in what must have been his studio. He held a chisel in one hand and stared up at a jagged heap of stone. Sculptor Brzezinski commissioned to craft obscene statue for private Utah collector, the headline said. It made me curious, but I didn't want to loiter too long in his apartment. So I snapped a picture of the news clipping, and then I put it back in the book and left. When I got back to my apartment, I finished putting the flyer together and printed out a few hundred copies. I spent the rest of the afternoon with Albert and Janine, posting the flyers all around the neighborhood. If we had the time or the resources, we would have posted them all over the city. But as it was, we could barely cover Bushwick. As we walked from one block to the next, 
taping the flyers to street lights and fence posts. I wondered where Mr. Brzezinski could have gone. Could somebody have hurt him? And if so, who? What kind of enemies could he have possibly had? I knew he had some relatively controversial political opinions, but it seemed a reach that anyone would want to harm him. Or, maybe, I wondered morbidly, could he have done himself in? Perhaps he went somewhere quiet, somewhere peaceful, where he could go out on his own terms. It didn't seem like him, but people were sometimes unpredictable, I knew. When I got home that evening, I thought again about the newspaper clipping that had fallen out of the book. I pulled out my phone and looked at the picture, zooming in so I could read the text. It explained that in 1979, Mr. Brzezinski was one of eight artists commissioned to sculpt a series of statues for a wealthy collector named Arthur Straniak. Straniak apparently lived in Utah and had commissioned the statues for some kind of macabre sculpture garden on his property. According to the article, the statue was titled Purgatory, and it consists of a man driving a railroad spike into his own chest with a sledgehammer. When I finished the article, I looked the statue up online, curious to see what it looked like. It's horrific, but also beautiful the immense anguish on the subject's face, the subtle detail of its features. The way he manages to convey the figure's violence is impeccable, a startling depiction of self-destruction. As I browsed the pictures, I also came across some other photos of the statues in Straniak's collection, each of them equally distressing. They portrayed sullen figures on the edge of death, I shut my computer and sat on the couch with Janine for a while, eating ice cream and watching mind-numbing reality TV. But hours later, when we turned out the lights and went to bed, I still couldn't get the image of Mr. Brzezinski's statue out of my head. I couldn't say precisely why, but it filled me with a sense of dread. The feeling sent me searching through all my memories with the old man looking for something that would reveal a hidden truth about him, something that would explain his vanishing. There was nothing I could tie directly to his disappearance, nothing that overtly foreshadowed what would happen, but there were inexplicable and sometimes dark moments when Mr. Brzezinski's words had puzzled me. On one occasion, I recalled sitting with him on his balcony. It was late in the evening, and as we sat, looking out at the city, I noticed that Mr. Brzezinski was humming. Who is that? I asked, turning to him. It sounds like Vivaldi. But he shook his head. Bach? I asked. He shook his head again. It's no one, he said. He paused for a long time before saying that it was just a sound he made to silence the noise in his head. I remember wondering at the time what he could have meant by that. It seemed like something someone would say if they were living with buried trauma, tormented by unhealed wounds. Of course, as was the nature of our relationship, I knew better than to ask him to explain. There were other things, though. Once, while we sat playing chess and listening to Philip Glass, he had told me that he'd just gotten word that the Boston Museum of Fine Art was planning a retrospective of his work. It would open in early 2024, he said. Congratulations, I told him. We should be celebrating. Should I go buy a bottle of champagne? But he seemed disgusted at the idea. Not at the drinking or celebration, but at the smugness of glorifying his own accomplishments. Are you nervous about how your work will be received? I asked him. He sat stoically for a moment and then shook his head. It wouldn't matter, he told me, because he would be gone by then. He spoke casually, but his words were full of conviction.
Oh, come on, I said feebly. But he waved me off dismissively. Well, best of luck with your pessimism, I told him. Thinking back on it, I wondered again if the whole thing had been planned. His behavior had seemed at times concerning leading up to his disappearance. The most ominous remark he'd made had been only a few weeks before he'd vanished. It had been exceptionally late that night, much later than he usually stayed up before shooing us out of his apartment. Janine, Albert, and I were scattered around Mr. Brzezinski's living room, talking with him about free will. Albert had an exhausting tendency of asserting that free will was nothing more than an elaborate illusion. I rolled my eyes every time he brought it up. What do you think? I asked, turning to Mr. Brzezinski. Is autonomy a lie? For some, Mr. Brzezinski said, taking a long drag from his cigarette. The will can be compromised. What do you mean? I asked. Are you talking about possession? But he grew quiet. After a moment, he turned to me, his expression somber, and said, There are things in our world that are not meant to be here. The remark had been playing on a loop in my head ever since Mr. Brzezinski had gone missing. I ruminated endlessly on it, trying to understand what it meant. There are things in our world that are not meant to be here. It was such an uncharacteristic thing for him to say, and the fact that he'd said it so soon before he disappeared made me inclined to think that he'd known something was coming for him. But what? In the days that followed, I checked in with the police regularly to see if they had found anything. When a week had passed and nothing new had come to light, I began to worry that the final words of Mr. Brzezinski's story had already been written. I was desperate to uncover a lead, something that would offer even a vague indication as to where he'd gone. I had just gotten home from work one afternoon, when I was reminded of something Mr. Brzezinski had given me a few months before. It was a book called The Ars Goetia. I hadn't read it or even cracked it open since I'd brought it back to my apartment. It had just sat idly on my bookshelf. I didn't expect it to solve the riddle of Mr. Brzezinski's vanishing, but I decided to flip through it anyway, if only out of sheer curiosity. It was black and leather-bound, with embossed gold lettering. As I would come to learn, the Ars Goetia is a section of a larger work, called The Lesser Key of Solomon. Listed within the Ars Goetia are the 72 demons of hell. They're ranked within a strict hierarchy, and each is paired with an intricate design, called a sigil. As I flipped from page to page, a single sentence repeated in my mind. There are things in our world that are not meant to be here. I studied each sigil, beginning to wonder why Mr. Brzezinski had felt compelled to share such a book with me. But then something stopped me. I looked down and noticed that one of the sigils looked unusually familiar. It corresponded with a demon named Amon, one of the Grand Marquis of Hell, and it was comprised of a rectangle with three rounded bumps at the top and bottom set inside a pair of concentric circles. I examined the image carefully, trying to recall where I'd seen it before. And then, unceremoniously, it came to me. I'd seen it in an aerial photo of Arthur Straniak's sculpture garden when I'd looked up Mr. Brzezinski's statue. Why would someone make a sculpture garden in the shape of a demonic symbol? I asked myself. The only answer I could find came in the form of a sentence, still repeating in my head. There are things in our world that are not meant to be here. Disturbed, but also somewhat curious, I opened my computer and typed the name Arthur Straniak into the search engine. 
what I found disturbed me even more. Arthur Straniak, the creator of an apparent demonic sculpture garden in eastern Utah, had been murdered just a month earlier. Investigators revealed that he had been flayed, a kind of suit made from his skin. It was never determined whether the horrendous skin suit had ever been worn by anyone, but detectives did state that they'd been unable to find fingerprints, DNA, or any other forensic evidence at the scene. It was a horrid yet perfectly executed murder, and of a high-profile individual, no less. There wasn't a single suspect, a single material lead. I sat, looking at photographs of Straniac and imagining him without his skin, the contours of his flesh, bound by pale cords of sinew, the chalky surface of his brittle arthritic bones. The thought of it made me shudder. As I scrolled through the results of my search, I uncovered another strange bit of information. Apparently, Mr. Straniac's will dictated that upon his death, his collection of statues would be donated to the Lehman Frisch Museum in Manhattan. The following week, the museum was hosting an event to unveil the statues. There was a part of me that was immediately curious and wanted to go, but there was also a part of me that felt intuitively that I should stay far away from that place. I didn't acknowledge it consciously, but I think I suspected somewhere deep down that the statues held some sort of power. I spent the next few days in an exhausting debate with myself about whether I should attend the unveiling. I was suspended between fear and curiosity, and on Friday, the day before the event was set to take place, I awoke to something that would make me feel even more conflicted. I had just stepped out of my bedroom when I noticed something on the ground near my front door. It was a sheet of paper. Drafting paper. Its edges rolled and torn. It looked like it had been slid under my door, and as I got close to it, I could see something was written on its surface. I picked it up, and then I opened the door and poked my head out into the hallway. Nobody was there. I stood in the empty hallway, still wearing only the sweatpants that I'd slept in, and read the words that had been scrawled on the piece of paper in my hand. Are you ready to behold my greatest creation? I hope to see you there. G.B. I'd never heard Gustav refer to himself by his initials, so it seemed at once to be suspicious. And yet, the handwriting did look quite a bit like his. Are you ready to behold my greatest creation? I hope to see you there. I took it to mean that he would be at the unveiling, but the note still left much unexplained. Where had he been in the meantime? And what proof was there that he had even left the note to begin with? Later that morning, I went downstairs to the front desk. Jillian was working again, and I asked her if Mr. Brzezinski had come home. She looked taken aback by the question. No, she said. Has there been some news? Not exactly, I said. I told her about the note that had been slipped under my door in the night and then I asked her if there was any way she could review the overnight security footage and tell me whether anyone had come near my door. Again, she seemed unsure whether to comply with my request, picking up the phone on her desk, ostensibly to call her superior again. But she quickly hung the phone back in its cradle. Um, okay, she said, betraying a hint of hesitation. She walked over to where a computer was stationed behind the desk and tapped on its keyboard. She made a few clicks with the mouse and looked back at me. And you don't know what time the note was left, she asked. Not precisely, I said. I'll just fast forward through the night and see what I can find, she said. She looked at the screen, 
and as more time began to pass, her expression slowly became one of confusion. What is it? I asked. Well, I'm not saying I don't believe you, she said. But it doesn't look like anyone walked by your door last night. Look. She turned the monitor so I could see the screen. She played the recording of the night, starting from when I got home in the evening. A few people got off on my floor, but nobody walked by my door. And then this happened, she said, slowing the footage back down to regular speed and pointing at the screen. It was 3.46 a.m., and the lobby and hallways were empty. Without anyone having pressed the button, the elevator doors suddenly opened on my floor. Nobody stepped out of it, though. And a few seconds later, the doors closed again. Now look, she said, pointing at the section of the screen that showed my apartment's front door. And suddenly, on the grainy black and white screen, something simply appeared. It looked like a familiar piece of paper, and it just seemed to float down through the air like a falling leaf. It fluttered down towards the base of my door and then slipped nimbly underneath as if the faintest gust of wind had blown it inside. What the hell did I just watch? I said. Jillian sat in silence at an apparent loss for words. As the recording played on, I saw a flash of something in the corner of the screen. Wait, I said. Can you go back? She stopped it and went back through the last few seconds of the recording, pausing on every frame. And then I saw it again. It was a reflection in the mirror at the end of the hall near the elevators. The image was small. It amounted to little more than a few pixels on the screen. But it was there. What is that? Jillian asked. I don't know, I said. Within the frame of the mirror was a dark figure. They were wearing a hood. And even though the image was small and blurry, I could see something sprouting from the place where their face should have been. It looked like a beak, long and black, resembling a crow or a raven. I was baffled by the figure's appearance, and I could tell Jillian was too. But there was something else that was eating at me as well. How could the figure have appeared in the mirror without also standing in front of it? It was like a reflection of something that wasn't even there. When the time came for the unveiling the following day, I couldn't help but attend. Even though the note and the footage had deeply unsettled me, I felt strangely compelled to go. I rode the subway over to Manhattan, my breath showing in the cold night air when I walked out into the street. I headed towards the Lehman Frisch Museum, which was a few blocks away up on West 57th Street. And as I walked, I thought about Arthur Straniak and the strange park he had built. I was curious about what he was trying to accomplish by building it. The fact that it was constructed in the shape of a demonic symbol suggested that he'd been trying to summon something. I was skeptical of the very idea of summoning a demonic entity. The world I lived in wasn't a place where things like that happened. But regardless of my skepticism, Straniak had suffered a gruesome fate. His death made me wonder if he'd been successful in his efforts to summon something from beyond our world. But if he had, it had apparently backfired at some point, because it seemed he'd been slaughtered by his own creation. Unless, I thought, that was part of the plan too. Maybe... His body was no longer needed for whatever he was trying to accomplish. The thought made me shiver, but I told myself it was just the cold. By the time I arrived at the Lehman Frisch Museum, people were already lined up for the unveiling. 
I got in line behind painfully trendy art critic types, with their scarves and trench coats and horn-rimmed glasses. I studied all their faces, but didn't see anyone I recognized. I'd been standing there in the steadily growing line for about thirty minutes when the museum's towering entrance doors swung open. Slowly, we began to file inside. The main gallery of the museum was an open and airy room, lit by a sterile white glow. Its walls were blank and white, the whole of the room's attention being drawn to the collection of statues that sat in its center. Just as they had been in Straniac's sculpture garden, the statues were arranged in the shape of the sigil of Amon, a circular path having been constructed around them. The first statue I saw was one titled Aberration. It consists of a juvenile figure in a school uniform, stooping to lift a handgun out of its backpack. The piece is inherently disturbing, but deftly rendered. The youth's face expressing a frightening complacency, its eyes looking as though they're ready to see blood. I stared at it with mounting unease before proceeding along the walkway. As I approached another statue, I noticed Albert already standing there looking up at it. He blended right in with the artist types perusing the gallery, his Ivy League haircut and leather brogue boots shining brilliantly in the gallery lights. What are you doing here? I asked as I neared him. Oh, hey, he said. Gustav invited me. I wanted to see his work. He sent you a letter, too? I asked. Albert nodded and looked up at the statue. It was titled Restraint, and it depicts a female figure with a bulky, amorphous shape over her face. At first, it almost looked to me as though the statue was left unfinished, the figure's raw granite head appearing rough and uneven. But then I saw the figure's hands held up and clawing at the jagged mass clinging to its face. The fingers convey a desperate intensity, as if it's suffocating, fighting against its dying breath to rip the shapeless form off its face. I think he's supposed to be here, Albert said suddenly. Who? I asked. Mr. Brzezinski? Yeah, he said. That's what his letter suggested, at least. Yeah. Maybe, I conceded. I don't know, though. I kind of have a bad feeling about this whole thing. I mean, doesn't it seem weird to you that he'd disappear without explanation and then just show up again? Well, yeah, Albert said. But, I mean, a lot of things about Mr. Brzezinski seem weird to me. You haven't seen him, though, have you? I asked, turning to look at the slowly shifting crowd. Albert turned to look as well. No, he said. Have you? I shook my head. I'm going to go get something to drink, he said, gesturing to a minibar set up in the corner of the gallery. It looks like they're handing out champagne flutes over there. You want anything? He asked me, looking back as he started off. I'm fine, I said. I continued pacing through the gallery keeping one eye on the crowd as I examined the installations. But the next statue I encountered stopped me. It was a piece called Empty Anatomy, and it depicts a male figure, its outspread arms seeming to flail wildly as if trying to retain its balance or reach out for help. As the title would suggest, it appears as though the figure is hollow. Its eyes and mouth are open holes, revealing the empty brass interior of its head. In other areas, its skin seems to be peeling away, slipping free to expose the empty void inside. The area where this is most apparent is on the figure's lower abdomen, where a gaping tear on the front of its body lines up with a similarly eviscerated area on its back. If I stood in just the right spot, I could actually see right through it. As I looked, I couldn't help but think about Arthur Straniac, about his skin being peeled from his flesh to be fashioned into an apparent suit, 
I again found myself wondering if his death and mutilation had all been part of some plan, some dark ritual he was still performing. I was lost in thought when I noticed an anomalous shape through the hole in the statue's torso. When my eyes brought it into focus, I immediately recognized it. It was identical to the figure I'd seen in the hallway mirror when I'd watched the security recording. Because its hood cast such a dim shadow over its features, I couldn't see any details of its face. All I could make out was the long, sharp beak protruding from its face. I was shocked that no one else seemed to notice it. Was it someone in a costume? Or perhaps it was just an installation? Some other feature of the show? But no, I thought. It's moving. I stepped out from behind the statue I was looking at it through so that I could get a better look at it. But when I did, the bird-faced figure was gone. Moving back, I looked again through the hole in the statue's torso. There it was again, looming amid the crowd. Only now, its sharp, angular beak was pointed straight back at me hovering just below the empty void that was its face. I stumbled backwards in shock, momentarily losing my balance. My flailing form collided with a group of observers, and I nearly knocked them to the ground. I turned around and apologized sheepishly. They said nothing but inspected me coldly, looking like noble aristocrats who had just encountered the village idiot. When I regained my equilibrium and stepped past them, I encountered something that I was surprised to recognize. It was purgatory, the statue Mr. Brzezinski had made. Distracted by my state of unease, I'd forgotten that his work would even be there. And though I'd seen pictures of the piece online, it was both more incredible and more horrifying in person. The figure is carved out of marble while the hammer it holds, as well as the railroad spike it's in the process of hammering into its own chest, are both made of iron. The figure seems to wail in anguish, but the strength with which it grips the hammer suggests that it's also steadfastly committed to its own demise. As I gazed at the statue, studying its fine detail, a voice drifted into my ear and immediately caught hold of me. Some of my best work, it said, don't you think? The hair on my neck rose as I turned to see Mr. Brzezinski standing behind me. Or, at least it looked like Mr. Brzezinski. He was wearing a long, dark coat, his frail hands folded in front of him. His bald head seemed to lack its usual shine, his skin pallid and coarse. His gray mustache was frayed, like an old, worn toothbrush, its hairs brittle and wiry. And his eyes looked cloudy, like a smoky film had grown over them. What are you doing here? I said, shaken by his appearance. Where have you been? We've been looking for you. His pale cheeks produced a faint grin, as if he wanted to smile but was restraining himself. I've been working, he said. Working? What have you been working on? I gestured to the statue before us. What's the point of all this, anyway? Why do I get the feeling this wasn't made merely for the sake of artistic expression? Now he did let himself smile. As Chekhov said, the job of the artist is to ask questions, not to answer them. His voice sounded dry and cracked, like his vocal cords had been frayed. I studied his features, the loose, gray-tinged skin that hung from his bones. You're not Gustav, I said. Who are you, really? I can show you, he said. If you come with me, I can show you a great many things. His milky eyes seemed to flash as he said this, 
and for the briefest of moments, I almost wanted to accept his invitation, though I couldn't say exactly why. But before I could answer, the relative calm of the gallery was broken by a piercing scream. I turned around to see a middle-aged woman, doubled over in apparent distress. Onlookers stood idly by as she staggered and then collapsed. A few people rushed to her side and helped her roll over onto her back. When they did, I could see that her eyes were appallingly dark, somewhere between blood red and pitch black. Blood was pooling in her eyelids, and onlookers gasped audibly as it began to trickle down her temples. Suddenly, screams broke out on the other side of the gallery as another person stumbled to the ground, this one a young man, his eyes also appearing to hemorrhage blood. It was at just that moment that hysteria broke out in the museum. People began to run, their movements punctuated by frantic screams, and soon there were crowds jamming the exits. In the chaos, as I myself began to panic, I swore I could see a figure watching the crowd from the corner of the gallery, its long, shiny beak still aimed directly at me. I pushed through the crowd towards the exit, and as I did, I caught sight of Albert as he squeezed through the door, although he wasn't alone. The thing that looked like Mr. Brzezinski was with him, seeming to beckon him, like it was leading him somewhere. Albert, no! I shouted, but my warning was lost in the cacophonous screams. Desperately, I tried to shove my way through the mob, but I could hardly make any headway. When I finally got outside, Albert and the sickly approximation of Mr. Brzezinski were gone. What happened that night at the museum would later be described in the press as a severe allergic event. Three separate people suffered from spontaneous hyphema, one of them becoming permanently blind. It was suggested that a chemical cleaning solution used by the museum had caused the blood vessels in their eyes to rupture, but there was little evidence to substantiate the claim. In the end, though, it hardly seemed to matter what caused their injuries. Their tears of blood were severely overshadowed by something else that occurred that night. The murder of Albert Gillespie. Security cameras outside a nearby hotel caught Albert leaving the Lehman Frisch Museum with an elderly man that police described as having a striking resemblance to a missing Brooklynite named Gustav Brzezinski. Several hours later, Albert's body would be found in Yonkers near the shore of the Hudson River. A local resident had let her dog outside to relieve itself, but instead the dog had begun sniffing at something in a nearby bush. When she'd gone over to investigate, she'd found what she thought at first to be a rejected side of beef. There was apparently a butcher shop nearby that had been fined for dumping expired meat near the river. But as she got close, she realized it was something far more atrocious. Albert lay crumpled in the dirt, much of his flesh missing. His back and arms were cut down to the bone, one of his legs missing below the knee. The medical examiner would say that the cuts were shockingly clean, almost surgical, but that he was unable to determine what kind of tool or weapon had made them. I couldn't help but wonder if it hadn't been a tool or a weapon at all, but a long, sharp beak. When asked whether they thought the missing sculptor could have been responsible for the brutal slaying, the police responded that he was indeed a person of interest, and that if anyone knew of Gustav Brzezinski's whereabouts, they were encouraged to call in. Their effort to contact him proved to be short-lived, though because less than a week later, Gustav's body would also be found. His corpse was discovered in a rural, wooded area, 
near Greenwich, Connecticut. He was killed by a metal stake that had been driven into his chest, presumably by a hammer that had been found near the body. Because his death bears such an uncanny resemblance to his own sculpture, some investigators believed it to be a suicide. Other sources familiar with the case thought he'd been murdered. The one thing both sides managed to agree on also happened to be one of the most perplexing aspects of the case. Based on his state of decomposition, it was determined that Mr. Brzezinski had been dead for three to four weeks, roughly the amount of time he'd been missing. In a way, the news came as a relief because it meant Mr. Brzezinski couldn't be responsible for Albert's murder, even if I knew something that looked like him was. Something that once may have called itself Arthur Straniak, occupying a vacant container of flesh, and still serving in death the thing it dedicated its life to summoning. Hey, thanks so much for listening. If you enjoy the show, I just want to make sure you know I have a Patreon. It's $3 per new episode, and you get to listen to every release early. You also get to listen without ads, and you get exclusive access to my audiobook, Solace. It's over eight hours long. It's sort of a cosmic horror slash mystery thriller story with some sci-fi mixed in. There's also a private RSS feed for the Patreon. And there will be a link to that in the bio of the show, as well as in the uh, episode description. And I'm extremely excited to announce that I now have merch as well. There's some t-shirts available, various sizes, various colors, various cryptic designs. And you can get them at my online store. There will be a link for that as well in the episode description and in the bio of the show. You can also leave a rating or review wherever you like to listen to the show. I really appreciate each one of those. And if none of those things interest you, that's okay too. Because just the fact that you're listening really means the world to me. So, thank you. Every five minutes, a transplant candidate dies while waiting for a compatible heart, liver, or kidney. Imagine a technology that could provide those life-saving transplant organs for a high price, and imagine what a company would do to monopolize that technology. On a remote island in Lake Superior, a team of geneticists unlocks this holy grail of medicine by reverse engineering the genomes of all mammals, creating an animal with organs perfectly suitable for human transplantation. They envisioned a docile herd animal, but one team member had another, darker vision. This ancestor is anything but docile. The team's work spawns something big, something evil, something very, very hungry. Ancestor is a complete serialized fiction podcast by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler with all episodes available. Binge the entire story now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.